we are um, going to jump into week two of the series that we started last week called Healing What Still Hurts. If you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, I wanted to just remind you, I think most of you all have been here the, the past few weeks, but if you haven't, um, we are receiving an offering in the box at the back. You can also set up online giving if you'd like to do that. Um, and we're going we're gonna to have a good conversation today. I think maybe a hard conversation as well. Uh, Matthew 18 is, is where we'll be. So I, I wanted to frame today's conversation. And again, we're going to hopefully a little bit of interaction. Carrie reminded me last week that I started the whole sermon saying, we're going to not just preach, we're going to have a Bible study. And I asked one question and then I just preached. She was like, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. So we're hoping to have more of a conversation today. So if you have a comment, just throw your hand up, and I'll remember that I said that we could do that. I won't think that you're weird. Um, but did, did you ever notice, I wanted to frame today with this question, did you ever notice how a lot of the pain, we're talking about healing in this series, but a lot of the pain that we feel in the deepest parts of ourselves uh, is often inflicted by the people who are closest to us? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it feels like the closer someone is, the more it can get, it can hurt to get hurt by them. Like if the wounds caused by the words of others had come from the words of strangers, we maybe wouldn't have felt them as deeply. They wouldn't have stung as much. But because they were spoken by the people closest to us, the people we loved and people who loved us, they carried more weight. They hurt more deeply. And in all honesty, they're, they're often those words, those wounds are harder to let go of. I, I, there's a prayer that I used to have on a bumper sticker, and I would put it on my guitar case, and it, and it said this. It said, Dear Jesus, please protect me from your followers. Some of you will get that in a little bit. It, it was a good conversation starter. I would, I would go and lead worship in other places, or I would speak for youth ministry things, and, and when I would go there, I would find myself often getting a couple different responses. They would see that bumper sticker, and more often than not, one of the other Christian leaders in whatever setting I was in would would kind of laugh and say, man, I get that. <laughs> like, I've prayed that before. And then others, those who were maybe newer to the faith or or weren't quite picking up what the bumper sticker was saying, would look at me a little curiously and they would ask, like, what do, what do you mean by that? And so when they would ask, what do you mean by that, I would tell some stories. Like, I have a friend who was hired as a youth pastor, okay? He was brought into a community that was a thousand miles away from where he grew up in Texas, and he was called there to lead this group of high school students. And he did it, but it didn't go that well, right? Like the ministry started losing families. They were seeing kids leave the program. Uh, and the church made this hard decision to let him go. That's, that's Christianese for we're firing you. We're, we're letting you, we're releasing you to God's call. That's, that's kind of the phrasing that's used. But as they let him go, they said, they told him, you know what, we're looking for someone else to replace you, but we want to pay you a bit to fly back here from Texas on weekends and lead our youth group until we find the right person. Another, dear Jesus, please protect me from your follow. These are these stories. You can just repeat that prayer. Or another friend I know who posted something this past week or so ago, calling out some of the racial injustice that's taken place, and a fellow believer in Christ responded with, "You disappoint me, and I'm quickly losing respect for you." Right? And then someone else on his Facebook wall said, "Well, time for me to find a new church." So this person publicly quit his church on Facebook. Everybody say, "Dear Jesus, please protect me from." your followers. Or I had this guy email me one time after I led worship in a church we were on staff with in Pittsburgh, and it was right after our Easter services. This is, if you could all just bless me by not emailing complaints Monday after Easter. Like, it's, it's the most tired Monday I have all year long, right? But, but the gist is, this guy emails, and he can't believe I'm being placed in leadership over the music and arts ministry in our church when I don't even dress well enough 
to even be on stage. And what am I even thinking trying to turn music like that into worship music? Dear Jesus, please protect me from your followers. There's, there's a, 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 a preacher that I listened to, and he described incidents like that with the idea of being killed with a thousand paper cuts. Such a powerful image. Like, we just keep getting these little slices from people who are supposed to love us, people who are supposed to be loving like Jesus. The people closest to us can often cause the most pain, can't they? Well, in this series, Healing What Still Hurts, last week I told you that healing starts with understanding God's heart to heal. Like, God actually, part of his passion, part of his love for us is that he wants to heal the things in us. We, we read, read last week where Jesus told his disciples who wanted to know, hey, Jesus, can you tell us what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God? Can you tell us who the greatest is? We're pretty sure we're on the list. We just want to know our pecking order in the list. And Jesus tells them that greatness looks like little children. It's the least of these. It's the cast asides. It's the ones who are devalued, the ones who are often left out. And Jesus spells out for his disciples that God cares about the least, the lost, and the most vulnerable. And I told you last week that when it comes to healing what still hurts in your life, we need to understand God's heart for the vulnerable as not just other people, but even for the broken parts of your life that you don't want to talk about, that you don't want to deal with. So for healing to occur, it's going to require that we come clean about the pain that we're still experiencing. We can't just ignore it or hide it or distract ourselves from it. We have to be willing to dig deep into the pain in order to take it to Jesus. So here's the question for today. What do we do with the hurt that comes from those who are supposed to love us? who were supposed to love us, who are supposed to love us? What do we do with the pain that comes from the places and the people where it hurts the most. Some of you, you know the paper cuts. You have the wounds of your childhood. Maybe it was dad who left. It was mom who gave up. It was siblings. And you're still carrying the wounds of those things. Some of you, you know the brokenness of the marriage that ended or the marriage that feels like it's shattering right now, the betrayal, the failure, the rejection. Some of you, it's like me, you know the pain of the church. And your faith in God has been rocked because of the pain caused or inflicted by other Christ followers. What do we do with this? How do we respond? How do we heal from, from the most intimate pain, the most perpetual of stings? See, for the next two weeks of this series, we're going to dig in a bit more to this narrative in Matthew 18. And I want to give you a heads up about where this is headed, all right? The next two weeks, we're going to talk about forgiveness. That's what Jesus is speaking of. We're going to talk about how to practice forgiveness. And for some of you, you just need to hear this right up front. This is one of those, your pastor loves you enough to tell you the truth, which is never a fun conversation. But I bet you already know this. It's hard and it's going to hurt when I say it, but you need to hear it. Your healing won't happen until forgiveness is made real in your life. Some of you cannot find healing until you offer forgiveness. It's just not going to happen. Now, I know for some of you, when you think about the wounds caused by those closest to you, that doesn't even seem possible. You know you should forgive, but you don't know how to forgive. Like, we, we get that, right? Like, we have a lot of shoulds in our life, but we don't always have the how. We don't always know how to do it. We're going to talk about the how next week. Or you've heard this before. That's, that's to get you to come back, by the way. We're trying to keep everybody in the room as much as we can, okay? Forgiveness is how you heal. You've heard that, but you've tried it, and it just wasn't possible. Or you tried it. You extended forgiveness, and then the person or the people turned around and burned you again. 
See, I get it. The, the stories I didn't tell you about being hurt by the church are the ones that hurt me the most. Those are the ones that I don't want to share, that I'm not able to talk about. The, the ones that I'm just kind of saying, eh, I'll tell you stories of my friends because I don't believe that much. But if I'm honest, there are things that still hurt me. But I'm telling you, and you're going to see it these next couple weeks, healing won't happen until forgiveness is made real in your life. So here's how we're doing this. This, this week, I'm going to give you a process for reconciliation. Today, I'm going to give you steps. When you have been hurt, when you've seen sin caused against you, this is the process. This is what reconciliation looks like, a way to think about the steps that move us toward forgiveness, a clear set of action points that you can take when you've been hurt by those who, listen, specifically identify as Jesus followers. This is the process. Then next week, I'm going to give you a principle, the how the guideline for how uh, your hurt can be framed and the wounds that you've experienced can be cast aside or even absorbed and redirected with beauty towards forgiveness. Now, you can think about today as the nuts and bolts and next week as the engine. Is that okay? So this is like a two-week series within a series. That's how bored I've been, all right? Like we, this is what we're doing. So maybe picture this as that. Uh, we're talking about healing, but the next two weeks are gonna be about forgiveness and the part of that that plays into our healing. So let's dig into the process. Matthew 18, here's what verse 15 says. Somebody short used this. I've never had to raise a music stand in my life. Hold on one second. Don't know, it wasn't you, was it? Okay. <laughs> Matthew 18, verse 15. Here's what it says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Everybody say, just between the two of you. Now look at somebody else, even if you're socially distanced, and say, just between the two of you. If you're, that's the sermon for today. That's step one. Most of you, we have failed at that step. If your brother or sister sins. Now listen, most translations actually include another phrase there that says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, that's a big if, you've won them over. Now, I want you to understand right off the bat, for a long time, these verses that we're going to discuss have been seen as the be-all, end-all for a procedure of something called church discipline. How many of you grew up in a church where you heard that phrase, church discipline? Come on, some of you grew up Baptist. I know you've heard church discipline, right? You grew up maybe in a faith community that used those words. Doesn't it sound so much fun? It's like the principle, but less exciting. It's church discipline. So if you did, you probably know the gist of this passage in that context of church discipline, or you'll see it today. Jesus is going to tell us this. Go point out the sin, then take witnesses, then tell it to the church, and kick them out. That's kind of what we understand church discipline to look like. It's kind of the process as it's been understood. But I want to reframe some of that today. I don't think it's completely off, but I think we need to understand some of the context because let me just say it this way. The church has jacked this up down through the centuries. That's the Greek term, jacked up. And you'll see why we have blown it. First of all, again, most translations say, if your brother or sister sins against you, look again to that person and say, against you. Come on, we need some participation. Remember, we left off last week. We left off. Come back, Pam. We left off last week. You missed your moment. Listen. With Jesus talking, last week, Jesus is talking about how God always wants to go find lost things, lost people, just like a shepherd would go find lost sheep. In verse 10, he says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. This is what he preached about last week. 
He puts a child in front of them. Don't despise these vulnerable children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then he says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Beautiful, amazing, grace-filled passage. God loves finding lost people. That's what we talk about. God has a heart for the lost. And now, Jesus is immediately after that going to talk about what should happen when someone sins against you. So if I'm a disciple, I'm going, good, enough about the lost sheep. Let's drop the hammer. Let's talk about what happens when I'm wrong. But keep this in mind. Because Jesus isn't taking a new topic about church discipline. He's still talking about finding lost things. He's still engaging this conversation about what it means for the lost to be found, to be reconciled, to find healing, to find hope. And I would say it this way. For Jesus, the lost people are often the ones who hurt us the most. Do you understand that's the kingdom of God? Not in our world. In our world, the ones who hurt us are the enemy, aren't they? They're the ones we want to cast out. Just get out of my life. For Jesus, he says, God wants to find lost people. Now, let me tell you how to do reconciliation. Let me tell you how to find the ones that are lost. So Jesus is talking about the process, what we do when we've been hurt, specifically when we have been directly sinned against. And how do we do this with people whom God still wants to heal? People that are not our enemies, but are broken by the power of sin. God wants to reconcile them. What do we do? But notice first, and I had you say this, it's sin against you, okay? This is Jesus saying when, some, when your brother or sister sins against you, everything he's going to spell out in this passage, and you, you need to write this down, remember this, tattoo it somewhere, it's about directness. Everybody say directness. It is about directness. This is not a passage about what you do when you heard about someone screwing up stuff in their life. I heard a rumor in our prayer meeting. I mean, it was a prayer request but I heard it, and so now i got to deal with it. So this is not about that. This is not about how you react to the latest church gossip. It's not about what you do when you see something inappropriate on social media. This is about when you're sinned against directly. And let me say this. You better know it was sin. It's not just he or she hurt my feelings or, or, or they said this. It is direct sin against you. And when you've been sinned against directly, here's what Jesus says to do first. Go directly to them. Go to them and point out their fault just between, everybody say it, the two of you. It's the two of you. And some of you, listen, you can leave right now. That's the sermon you need. That's it. That's the end of the sermon for some of you. Some of you, that's all you need today. Because if you're really concerned, listen, if you are really concerned about the least of these, about lost people being found, about dealing with the heart of issues, then this is it. If you want to find your own healing, you're going to have to deal with the ones that hurt you the deepest. You're going to have to go to them directly. Some of you, all you need to do today is go to one other person. You need to walk out of this service, maybe even during the last song, and go make a phone call. Go send a text message. Go write a letter. Say, we need to talk. We need to wrestle through this. We need to actually deal with this. And you know what that means? You know what Jesus doesn't say here, but he implies? Stop going to everyone else with the things that should be directly dealt with with someone else. 
Stop making triangles. Some of you, that's your favorite shape. Somebody comes and offends me. Oh, Mike, I hurt my feelings so bad, so I'm going to make a triangle. Do you know what our other band member did? Can I tell you what the bass player did? And we've got triangles. We've got churches full of triangles when they should be circles, when they should be arrows. If we have broken each other's heart, we need to go to each other's. We are a culture of triangles when we need to be circles and directness, working with each other. Look at verse 16. But if they will not listen, now this is where we're, okay, because I've been there. I've tried to talk to somebody. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, now check this out. This is quoted, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let me give you the context of why this is quoted. Let me give you the context of where this is coming from. Jesus is quoting a chapter from Deuteronomy 19. And in Deuteronomy 19, the Mosaic law, here's what happens in that chapter. God actually provides a law for people who someone accidentally kills someone else. This is how concerned God was about justice. If someone accidentally kills someone else, here's what God knew would happen. There would be someone called an avenger of blood. So if you killed my kin, I would become the avenger of blood. And I would have every right to come hunt you down and take vengeance by replacing your life for their life. And God says, yeah, but if that happens accidentally, this is Deuteronomy 19, what I want you to do is set aside three cities in your nation. And these cities are called cities of refuge. And for those who have accidentally committed murder, they can go to those cities of refuge and they can be safe. And then God goes on and he says, but if somebody kills someone on purpose, then justice is to be paid. But here's how justice happens. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 19. Only if there are two or three witnesses. It's never to be built a case against someone for the sake of justice with just one witness. You have to have two or three witnesses. So watch what Jesus is doing. God doesn't want innocent blood shed clear back in Deuteronomy 19. But in, and I would say it this way. If we were really committed to relationships, we would take, now watch the difference here, we would take witnesses, not gossips. Are you with me? Can, can we amen that? I, I know you got masks on. Come on. Can, we would take witnesses, not reinforcements. We would take brothers and sisters in Christ committed to the body of Christ being reconciled, the lost being found, rather than those who simply want to say, I know, you're right. Don't you feel better because I told you you're right? Now let's, the two of us, since we're so right in our rightness, let's go get them and tell them how right we are. He says, take witnesses. And if we were committed to relationships, we would do the same thing. See, the cities of refuge were set up to give good justice for those who didn't mean to cause hurt. Two to three witnesses was about the good justice for those who did cause hurt on purpose. See, God has always been about and always will be about good justice for humanity. Now watch, this is where we love this. We love justice. But he's even about justice for those who have caused the crime. He's even about justice for those who have hurt us. See, we live in a gotcha culture. Don't we? we live in a culture that just says, I want you to know I'm right. We're not caring about justice. We're caring about being right. And so the way that we do this often, the way we actually try to practice this scripture is we tell other people before we tell the person. We go directly to others before we go to directly to the one who has hurt us. And we have told the other people, and then we passively, aggressively tell the other person, or more likely, other people. See, Jesus says, take two to three witnesses. You know what the disciples were? They were 
witnesses. And you know what a witness is? They believe something. They don't just sympathize with it. See, listen, friends, if you're surrounded by people who all they do is sympathize with you, you may not have witnesses. You may just have therapists. You need people who are walking beside you for the body of Christ. See, we had our kids camping. uh, Beck and I had our our kids camping this week. And what I found is that when our kids are together, there are often issues of justice. Are you with me? And, And there are issues of justice because they will run and they will tell us about something that one of them did. I, I, well, you're not going to believe what Bella did. She did this. Uh, they're, they're telling me something, okay? Here's what changes. When the six of our kids are together and they're out playing and an outsider commits injustice against their tribe, are you with me? Now they're witnesses. Now they're standing for justice. You will not believe what happened to us. See, there's a difference between a being a tattletale and a witness, Some of you think reconciliation is practiced by tattletaling, and you need to start practicing justice and witnessing to the gospel, to the hope that it has. So Jesus says, go directly to them. If if they don't listen to you, then take two or three witnesses. Take the body of Christ with you. And then he says this verse, and this is where we're going to interact a little bit. Look at verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, here's my question. This is Bible study. What the heck does that mean? What do we do there? what's, What's that all about? Come on, I'm opening it up for conversation. You've got to tell Carrie that I actually did this, by the way. What does that mean? Any thoughts? Say it again. Okay, okay. Okay, well, what about telling the church? What do we do there? Is that like part of the announcements? That could be fun. <laughs> I bet people would be paying attention to the announcements. Who screwed up this week? We'll just put their picture up there. We'll list their offenses. Like religious mugshots. That's right. (laughs) What does this mean? (laughs) This is hard, right? See, what I've found is that even when churches talk about church discipline, often they don't get to this point. They don't talk about it. We do the thing where we say, no, no, go directly to that person take witnesses with you, but often we free, what the heck does this mean? Let me unpack this a little bit. See, the church, we we have to first understand the way we do church is not necessarily the way Jesus envisioned church. The way Jesus envisioned church, the way the disciples in Acts and, and throughout the New Testament practiced church was not just a Sunday event. It was the gathered body. It was the body of believers sharing life together, sharing possessions together. See, we have misinterpreted what the church is and who it is and what it looks like. We, I would, I would actually say this. We are often not even functioning as the church today. We gather as believers, but are we really being the church? Are we really carrying out until we go beyond Sundays, until we show up in each other's lives. And we've got pockets of this, but what does it mean to be the church? Now, l- l- let me explain this. When he says, tell it to the church, I think Jesus is saying, tell the body of believers that shares life together. Now, my guess is that's the people that you're walking with in community 
This person has sinned against you. You've gone to them. Now you've taken two to three witnesses that love Jesus and love you and love them, and you're working to see reconciliation happen, and they're still resisting. This is something that gets to the point that you say, we don't know what to do. We've got to tell our body of believers sharing life together. Oftentimes it's practiced today, and I think wisely we've done this in this church. That's the leadership of the church. That's often happening. I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus is spelling out here, but I think that's how we practice that very tangibly. But then he says, treat them as you would pagans or tax collectors. Let me explain this. See, the pagan in the Jewish culture, they were not part of their community. They, were, they, were, they, they didn't belong. See, if you went to the religious gathering place, the temple, the pagan couldn't get very close to the place of worship. The tax collector was seen as the lowest of the low. They were hated today. I was trying to think about what to compare that to today. Do we have any examples of tax? Oh, tax collectors. Like, that's what, that's what we could use, right? Like, they were seen as that. The pol- Sorry, Heather. <laughs> they, were, they were the politicians of the day, but they were seen with harlots, with murderers. So the cultural assumption, listen, the the cultural assumption of this time was cast them out. And for a Jewish audience listening to Jesus, treat them as you would a tax collector, a pagan. That audience would have gone, good, get them out of here. But you got to think about this for enough, for a second. See, this is sin serious enough to actually remove someone from the religious gathering. Do you know who wrote the book of Matthew? Yell it out. Yell it out. It's not a hard question. Matthew. Yeah, well done. Well done. Do you know what Matthew's role in life was before Jesus called him to follow him as a disciple? Bam, he was a tax collector. So we're in Matthew 18. Let me, let me trace a couple things for you. Matthew 9, it says in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, many, many tax collectors And sinners, that's how they equated them, tax collectors and sinners, came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with these horrible tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Matthew 10, after having shared this conversion story in Matthew 9, Matthew writes, a list of all the disciples, and he names them. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and watch Matthew, the tax collector. He lists all these names, and Matthew keeps his identity. Don't forget, I was the the tax collector. In Matthew 11, Jesus is accused of being a, quote, friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is part of Matthew's story. See, he was lost, and he's now found, and he's telling people how Jesus told him to find lost people. See, whatever led anyone to conclude, listen, we've got to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's flipping the assumption on its head. Whatever led anyone to conclude that when Matthew, who knows how Jesus treats tax collectors, would actually say, treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector, if we think he means, get them out of your life, it's not at all what Matthew's saying. I think it means exactly the opposite. I think it means love him, accept him, invite them, eat with them, keep on challenging them to be transformed into a faithful disciple of Jesus. And how could treat him like a pagan mean get rid of him, reject him, shun him in a gospel that ends with Jesus telling his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations? How could that be 
the message. I think Matthew's writing, he loved me. He accepted me. He welcomed me. He called me. And when he writes, treat him like a pagan, he surely means go to the ends of the earth to win him back into the life of discipleship. This is genius on the part of Jesus. He's subverting not only the the assumptions of the disciples, he's subverting the empire, the religion that would have said, get them out, ignore them, leave them out, excommunicate them. Jesus says, don't despise the little ones. Become their city of refuge. And watch this. This is the genius. Don't compromise on sin. If they reject it, if they reject truth, you don't have to soften that. You, you tell your body of believers. You let them know that this is a conscious rejection of the community of Christ seeking to love them. But you love them as you would a tax collector. You love them just as much as you would. See, Jesus has practiced, and, and, and he's the only one who does this well. Don't despise the little ones. Love them so well. But also, don't ever, ever, ever compromise on the sin. One writer says the basis of treating a sinning brother or sister within this new emerging community is love and forgiveness with the priority of reconciling this brother or sister back to fellowship. And I would say this, but don't keep exposing yourself to their sin if they're unrepentant. You don't have to be in that place. So as we start to wrap this up, I want you to think about this. This process that I told you is how forgiveness starts to come about. When we've been sinned against, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I just ask this question, just survey? How many of you have been hurt by other Christians? Just raise your hand. How many have been wounded? You've seen brothers. How many of you caused hurt to other Christians? Yeah, we've been there. This is the process Jesus said. We're going to talk about all the other stuff that life throws at us in the next few weeks. But for these two weeks, I want to talk about forgiveness. First, understand, this is the process. Understand that even the ones who hurt you are lost. I think the kingdom of God doesn't have any enemies other than maybe Satan. We understand that the people who hurt us are lost. And some of you, that's the first move toward forgiveness that you need to make, is understanding that hurt people hurt others, that broken people break others. That's that process. They're the little ones that Jesus talks about. Friends, that's the gospel. That sentence alone says, we killed Jesus. We hung Jesus on a cross, and yet he chose to love us and find us. The second step of this process, after we understand that those who hurt us are lost, is go directly. Go directly to them. When you're sinned against, go to them. Again, some of you, you need to walk out of here and call someone, write a letter to someone, send a message to someone, and the first step needs to be, can we talk? Because if you don't do it today, you're not going to do it. You're going to get through today, and you're going to numb it with something else tonight. You're going to hide it. You're going to ignore it. You're going to put it away. And if you don't take action towards reconciliation today, you're going to miss the opportunity to be faithful to what Jesus tells us to do. Here's the third step. Take two or three for the sake of finding healing. Take witnesses, not reinforcements. And then I think this, this step of tell the church. Get the body around you praying. Get the body around you understanding we are called to love this person back to healing. And then he this last thing, treat them as you would the lost. See, I, here's, here this, here's where this becomes reality for me, and I'll close with this. I have people in my life that I don't put myself in a place where they can continue to hurt me. And that's okay. I think that's okay. There are people that I still have a deep love for. I have a hope, and I pray for them, and I pray that they will find healing. And I don't mean that. I hope you don't hear that with any sense of superiority or arrogance, because I have caused hurt to them as well, I'm sure. 
but I am praying for them to find healing and hurt, but I will not expose myself to the continued toxicity of that relationship. You don't have to keep returning to the toxic people. I would say it's possible to offer forgiveness, but not forget. That's possible, and that's wise. And so I'm going to have the band come, and I, I just want to make this really real and specific and practical, to, practical today. I want to lead you in a time of prayer, and I want you to answer. All I'm going to do is ask questions, and I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak into your life about who he might bring to mind for you or what this might mean for you. This is a process. And listen, friends, the process doesn't mean that it happens instantaneously. The process of forgiveness, and as we talk about the principle of forgiveness next week, how, how God takes and allows us to absorb pain and forgive it and transform it into beauty, that's where the power of this lies. But if we are not faithful in the process, then we're missing out on this opportunity. So as Beck begins to play, I want to invite you to pray with me. And I would love just all around the room as you close your eyes, as you begin to listen, and this is listening prayer. This is a time to allow and and trust, and I believe this. I believe the Spirit of God wants to say some things to us. If we are a body of believers who are called to the work of healing, we said that last week, our world is desperately in need of healing, then we have to allow God to heal some things in us. We can only be wounded healers if we've been healed ourselves. So I want to ask you these questions, and I want you to spend some time praying these things. Here's the first question. Who is it that you need to go to directly? Who's hurt you? Who's caused pain? Who have you caused pain to? What what is that face? Who is that face? Who is that name that you need to go to? Who do you need to ask to forgive you? This is one Sunday where I would say the scripture says don't, if you're offering a sacrifice, don't do that while there's still unreconciled sin in your life. Get up, leave the place, and go make it right. And so as we sing at the end of this prayer, I want to invite you, if you've got things you need to deal with, go deal with them. You are released. That is obedience. I don't want to stand in the way of what God's doing. Who do you need to ask for forgiveness from? Who do you need to go directly to and say, you have hurt me. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm committed to you. By the way, this is for your fellow believers. This is not for people who don't know Jesus. This is for your brothers and sisters in Christ. To actually be the church, we have to go directly to them. And you shouldn't tell another person about it until you go to them. Here's the next question. Who needs you to help them reconcile to someone else? I'm not asking who needs you to prove that they're right. I'm not asking who needs you to put your arm around them and say, oh, you're, I know, I know you're mad. I'm saying who needs you to help them be the body of Christ that is about reconciliation? Who do you know that needs to know the body of Christ is the place of healing? Who do you know that's wandered that you just want to name them before God right now? You just want to pray for them and say, my heart is broken for them. They have rejected things. They've rejected the spirit, the leading of God. And I'm praying for them to come home to a savior who longs to find lost sheep. 
I will carry no more arrogance about them. I will carry no more superiority. It's not about me being right and them being wrong. It's about them coming home to the love of God. What steps do you need to take toward healing? What's the first step? forgiveness begin with for you? Who is it that you might actually even just release a hand today and say, I got to forgive this. I got to let go of this. Even, even if it hurts me, I've got to let go. 